Good morning. Today, as Matt said, begins the uh, four-week season of Advent, and our series titled The Divine Choreography of Christmas. Each of the messages will springboard from a verse that we've already seen up on the screen this morning. It's Galatians 4, 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, the concept of the fullness of the time is generally described as the time when under God's control, the Jewish, the Greek, and the Roman cultures had contributed to the world of that day what God felt necessary for it to be the time for Jesus to come. Example, the Romans uh, had provided safety and roads that allowed the gospel to spread much more rapidly than before that safety and and roads were there. But for us this year, instead of considering uh, those cultural preparations, true as they are, they are are true, uh, we're going to focus on the preparation by God of people. So the four messages for this series are going to be this morning, God's choice of the lineage of Jesus, which comes from, but when the fullness of time, when it was just right, had come, God sent forth his son. Next week, God's choice of the human mother of Jesus, born of a woman, from Galatians 4. A third week, God's choice of the legal father of Jesus, born under the law. And finally, the fourth week, God's choice of the first responders to Jesus to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, there may be some tie-in along the way to the Advent booklet that Matt just uh, introduced you to. And that you'll be working through with your family. But that was not our main goal this year with this series, to tie it directly to that booklet. Now, I'm really excited this morning. Uh, I get to teach a passage that I'm guessing 99% of you have never heard taught. And maybe the same percentage of you have never read. Uh, When I tell you what it is, some of you are going to moan and groan inwardly. And just so you know, I'm okay with that. I I love a challenge. But before I read our passage, I want to stress another verse as divine support for tackling this passage. It's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You see that first word? That says all, not, not some or even most, but all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now that we all know that God has my back on this passage this morning, I'm going to put up on the screen the beginning, the beginning of the passage, and you're going to see what it is. Matthew 1. The genealogy of Jesus. Now, do we have to have a collective moan just for a cathartic release here if we're going to spend the time? In? Yes, we do. Okay, everybody, all together, just whatever your moan is. That sounds about right. If you were honest, it'd be a lot louder, probably. But, um, and I'll tell you, I want to read. Yes, I want to read out loud this genealogy. So it'll be on the screen for you to follow. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Still with me? We okay? Okay. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mothan, and Mothan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. That's one of the loudest thanks be to God we've had in a long time. I think you just meant thanks that we're done. A Jewish father was pretty concerned that he had um, not raised his son to be grounded well enough in the faith of Judaism. So he sent him to Israel to experience his heritage. And a year later, the young man got back home, uh, went to his father and said, Father, thank you for sending me to the land of our fathers. It was, it was wonderful and it was enlightening, but I've got to confess to you that while in Israel, I converted to Christianity. And the father was decimated. So he went to his friend and for advice, and his friend said, it's amazing you came to me. I sent my son to Israel, and he also came back a Christian. So together they went to the rabbi and heard shocking words. It's amazing that you came to me. I too sent my son to Israel, and he came back a Christian. What's happening to our sons? Brothers, we must take this to the Lord. So they began to wail and pour out their hearts to God. And as they prayed, the clouds opened and a mighty voice said, It's amazing you came to me. I too sent my son to Israel. Thank you. <laughs> now, even though God sent his son to Israel, he wasn't only for Israel, but for all people. But Jesus was a Jew and was sent as a Jew to the Jews. And that is critical to understanding the reason for and the content of this genealogy. So three things this morning. Facts, just some general facts of the genealogy, the importance of the genealogy, and then finally, the, the biggest part, the God of the genealogy. 
Facts of the genealogy. Not every person in the line from Abraham to Jesus is recorded. There are gaps, which is common in Jewish genealogies. They were kind of like what we would see on a highlight reel, highlight reel of an NFL game today. You know, you see the big plays, the touchdowns, the field goals, all of that. But, the, you know, the guy ran, lost a half a yard. They don't show that on the highlight reel. And it's, and it's kind of like that in, in, in this genealogy. Um, they, included, they include the prominent people, but they skipped over the less well-known. So they gave accurate history and a traceable record, but not a complete history. Second thing in this one, Matthew repeatedly uses father of until he comes to Mary, where he says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And that whom is a feminine pronoun showing that Jesus was not born of Joseph, but born of Mary. And I'm guessing some of you are wondering, what is this 14, 14, 14 thing that, that we read in, in the passage? Uh, I wish I knew. Uh, since seven is the biblical number of perfection, some think it is two perfect numbers, seven plus seven equals 14, three times, which is six perfect numbers, equal to the days of creation, to then be followed by the culmination of the day of rest when Jesus returns. That's one thought. Second thought is <clears throat> that the sum of the numerical values of the letters in the name David is 14. Now, that's the kind of stuff you go to seminary for. You know, who, who knows what, what that means at, at this point? But there are some good guesses. Some of you are also thinking, hey, Luke has a genealogy too. What's with that? And frankly, nobody knows for sure what's with that. But we do know that Matthew traces Jesus' line through Joseph. Luke traces his through Mary. And it appears that Matthew is giving us Jesus' legal right to the throne of David through his son Solomon, while Luke gives Jesus' physical right to the throne of David through his other son, Nathan. And that's where the lines, the two genealogies split. What I do know is this. Matthew is writing to the Jews, so he traces Jesus' roots back to Abraham to demonstrate the theme of his gospel that Jesus is a true Jew and thus legitimate for a Messiah. Luke is writing to the Greeks, so he goes all the way back to Adam. If you were to read his genealogy, which I don't expect any of you to do, but he takes it all the way back to Adam, beyond Abraham, all the way back to Adam to demonstrate to the Greeks who were always looking for the perfect man. You know, the, the statutes of the, of the Greeks, they, the, perfection is what they wanted to show that Jesus is a true man, and in fact, he's the one perfect man. Now, does anyone here know how many genealogies there are in the Bible? Guess, just guess, how many? Go on. How many? 20? 25. That's J Street, Gold Star. There are 25 genealogies in the Bible. I didn't have a clue what that was until I went to that great theological source, Google. And, you know, has anyone here actually read every one of them? Good. Gold stars for the six of us. That's really good. One more thing. Last year, Matt, Steve, and I were uh, preparing to teach Bible 101. And Steve taught us a really critical truth about genealogies. They tend to occur just before God is going to undertake 
a redemptive work of some kind. For example, the genealogy in Genesis 5 brings history up to date from Adam to the flood when God steps in and purges wickedness and starts again in a redemptive work with Noah. And then just before he makes his redemptive covenant with Abraham, which we're going to look at a little bit today, he has another genealogy which brings history up from that time up to the time of that act of redemption in the Abrahamic covenant. See, the Bible is God's story, and though he doesn't give us all the details, he lets us know that life was going on in between the highlights in, these geneal- in, these, in the stories. But there, there, just wasn't, there just wasn't anything there in those long genealogies that God thought that we needed to know to understand what he was doing. But he brings the story up to date every time by naming the people. He could have named world disasters, but instead he decided to name people to bring, keep us up to date. And then there's Matthew 1. The genealogy of all genealogies. Does it introduce a redemptive act of God? The very next verse, verse 18, after the genealogy says this. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. Can't miss it. It tells us that God is on the move with the, the redemptive act of history. I see genealogies kind of like a uh, Bev Doolittle painting. Is anybody here familiar with those, Bev Doolittle? She, she paints scenes which are obvious, but then if you look a little closer, uh, new images appear to tell the painting's real story. Uh, this one, for example, the forest has eyes. If you just look at it really quickly, you just see the horses there. But if you look around a little bit, you see a bunch of different faces jumping out at you. But you know, just a quick look, when there's... Here, I've got this. Right there. Uh, there. Saw another one up there. Uh, there's a face there. I saw another one. I, I, I bet, I, I haven't found him, but I bet there's, a, there's one right there. I bet there's a dozen faces in that, in that painting. It tells a lot more than what a first glance shows you. And I want to see if we can show that Matthew chapter 1 is similar to that this morning. So secondly, the importance of the genealogy. For the Jews first, no name to the Jews is more important than the name Abraham. God gave the promise of the Messiah to him by making a covenant with him. And if you could not trace your roots back to Abraham, you simply didn't qualify as a Jew. And it was important to the Jews that their teachers were really Jews. When they returned home from captivity in in, uh, Babylon, Uh, In 516 B.C., Ezra reestablished worship in Jerusalem, and some wannabe priests at that time stepped forward to be teachers. And Ezra, too, says this. They searched for their names in the genealogical records, but they were not found. So they were disqualified from serving as priests. Not in the line? Get out of line. Those were the same genealogical records, by the way, used to establish the genealogy of Jesus. Interestingly, of the the torrent of criticisms against Jesus during his lifetime, never once did they question his pedigree. Never. That shows the importance of the genealogy, secondly, for Jesus. Of all 46 names in this genealogy, of course, two names top the list, Abraham and David. Both of them received a covenant from God And Matthew shows his, remember, he's writing to the Jews. He shows his Jewish audience that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment 
of both of those covenants, one to Abraham and one to David. Jesus had Jewish blood back to Abraham, and he had Jewish royal blood back to David in his veins. Now, that essence of the covenant with Abraham is in Genesis 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, listen to Paul in Galatians 3. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, Paul says, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So Paul is saying, it's Christ who became the promised blessing to all nations that was given to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the essence of the covenant God met with David was simply that he would have a son rule as king on the throne in the kingdom of God forever. Revelation 3, 7 says this, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, and this is Jesus talking, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. See, that key, the holder of the key, has control or authority over David's domain. And Jesus holds that king, showing there that he is the fulfillment of that promise to David. We'll talk about that just a little bit more, that he will be a ruler in David's line forever. So he's not born just a baby to be king of the Jews, but to be the king who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So the first 17 verses of Matthew may seem dry and boring to us, but they're indispensable. They establish the validity of the rest of the gospel. And they will be, tr- this will be true. That, that validity will be true for all of time and eternity. Without this genealogy, Jesus was just one among many other wannabe messiahs. Scholars indicate that at the time Jesus was living, there were 39 other guys running around saying, I'm the Messiah. No, I'm, I'm the Messiah. No, I think I'm the Messiah. 39 of them at that time. And here's something interesting. If, if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, nobody today can come and prove that they qualify to be the Messiah. Because after 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, all of the birth records were lost. So there's no longer any way for anyone to prove descent from Abraham and David. Whomever the Messiah was had to have come before 70 AD. So that's the facts and the importance of the genealogy. Now, the God of the genealogy. He's faithful. He keeps his promises. We may not lock his timing, but he keeps them. His promise to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed was made about 2100 B.C. Jesus finally came, finally came as the fulfillment of that promise, let's say about zero B.C. There's a little discrepancy by a few years there. That was a 2100-year wait. Can you imagine how many serious God-fearing people had to examine their faith in that promise over those two millennia? 
Here's what happened during that time. Joseph was sold into slavery. His family had to move there to survive a famine. They ended up in slavery for 400 years. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, finally entered the promised land, which is part of that promise to Abraham, but they had to fight for it to get it. They then endured 400 years of horrid conditions under the judges, still no promise fulfillment. Then the up and down time of Saul, David, and Solomon, followed by the secession of 10 tribes of the north. And, and, and then they, they lived under a total of 39 different kings, only eight of which followed God. And eventually both Israel and Judah were conquered by enemies, carried away. Their land was decimated. They came back from captivity after 70 years. They struggled to rebuild their home, but suffered under first the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. 21 years hanging on to a promise. Like I said, we... We may not like God's timing, but he never fails. And close to the middle of that 2100 years, about 1000 BC, God made the promise to David that he would have a descendant on his throne forever. He did have until 586 BC, but that's a long way from forever. So that promise was still out there hanging fire. Do you ever feel that way about God? You promised. I've been really patient. What are you waiting for? I mean, the kind of thing I'm asking you for is I know the kind of thing you want me to have. So what's the holdup? Years ago, Jan and I discovered a truth from Habakkuk, the prophet that has stuck with us. I can't tell you how many times we, we say this. To make a long story short, Habakkuk had complained to God about not doing something in Habakkuk's time frame. And the bottom line truth was, God may linger, but he's never late. In the 1970s, I was uh, full-time with Walk Through the Bible Ministries. Some of you may have heard about that. Even though I was the second guy to come on board, Bruce Wilkinson was still the president, therefore the boss. And let's just say there are easier guys to work for than Bruce Wilkinson. We became like two bull moose in rut. I wanted to quit so badly, and he wanted to fire me so badly. He almost did as we were going at it at 3 o'clock in the morning one day. But God just wouldn't let me go. Finally, after three years, God opened the opportunity for me to be a part of a team that planted Fellowship Bible Church. Here's my point. God had spent those three years teaching me submission to authority. And then after those three years, when I finally had the chance to leave, it was really difficult for me to leave. He may linger. I wanted out three years before. But he's never late. I, I did leave, but actually stayed on part-time for the next five years. To this day, I consider Bruce Wilkinson one of the five most important men in my life. And I love him. But God really lingered. But he wasn't late. 
That's a great truth, but the only way it'll pierce your heart and my heart is if you and I are totally sold out to the second truth about God in this genealogy. He's not only faithful, but he's sovereign. The seed line was sovereignly chosen by God. Sometimes it was the firstborn, sometimes it wasn't. Ishmael, Abraham's first son, isn't even mentioned. Uh, Judah, the fourthborn of Jacob's sons, is chosen over Reuben, Simeon, and Levi's, number one, two, and three. Jacob, Isaac's secondborn, was chosen over Esau, the firstborn. It's also filled with the miraculous. The second person in this genealogy was a miracle baby. He had been promised to his parents by God when they were 65 and 75 years old. They were childless to this point. So just, just picture that, 65 and a 75-year-old. God says, okay, I'm going I'm to give you a baby. Nothing for 25 years. And then when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90, voila, Isaac. How many 90-year-old pregnant women have you ever seen? When King David was really old, one of his sons, Adonijah, exalted himself by saying, I will be king. But God had said that Solomon would be king after David. And, and Adonijah went around and got a bunch of leaders and a bunch of counselors and people to follow him. And he was having this big, big uh, fiesta and festival to, to announce his, his, his candidacy for the kingship. And God, along the side, just stepped in and got Solomon crowned immediately and the contamination of the line did not take place because God miraculously did his thing. At one time, all God had to work with in this line was an eight-year-old boy, Josiah, but he continued the line. Sovereign act after sovereign act. And then, of course, it ends with this most mysterious miracle of all. A young Jewish girl in her teens becomes pregnant without ever having had sexual intercourse with a man. So this supernatural pregnancy was not a last-minute idea by God, right? The appearance of Jesus on earth was the, it was the culmination of a sovereignly inspired and a sovereignly accomplished plan of God that he had been working out through all history, in fact, through all eternity. Matthew was showing that God was sovereign, in control, using whatever methods he needed to lead his perfect plan down the centuries of time to end with Joseph standing beside the manger as the adoptive father, giving Jesus the legal line straight back to David and Abraham. That's why we can say he may linger, but he is never late. Because he's not only, not only faithful, but he also has at his disposal sovereign wisdom and power to do whatever he needs to do to make good on his promise in his way and in his time. And he does it in his way and at his time that he knows is absolutely best and good and perfect for every one of us. So if in your life he seems late He is not. And I know that comes I know that comes as a hard word some of you who are still waiting on something from God. But he's merely lingering for some reason that he knows. 
And he will show up right on time. His time. And the reason I know that he'll sovereignly make good on his promises to each of us in a way that is best and good and perfect for us is that this genealogy shows us that he's also gracious. You know, we believe that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man and perfect. And with that temptation, uh, it comes the temptation to think that maybe his ancestors were these really wonderful and perfect and good people too. Frankly, that's fiction. In the 42 generations mentioned by Matthew, there are good people and there are bad people. And there are good people who went bad and there are bad people who became good. And at the end of the line, Jesus was perfect, but Mary and Joseph weren't. They might have been special and chosen and faithful and wonderful, but there's nothing that tells us that they were perfect or came from family trees that were spotless. Thomas Fuller said this, He that has no fools, knaves, nor beggars in his family must have been begot by a flash of lightning. As a matter of fact, if you look closely at the branches of Jesus' family trail, you, you can find a hooker, a murderer, an adulterer, a liar, and an idol worshiper. And that is just looking at the surface. Abraham said that his wife was his sister twice so that he wouldn't have to fight for her. Abraham, coward and liar. Isaac did exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. Talk about the power of modeling. Jacob lied to his father, cheated his brother, and ripped off his father-in-law. Solomon allowed his wives, a thousand of them, Really, 300 wives and 700 concubines. A thousand altogether. He allowed them to bring all of their gods to Jerusalem and then allowed them to lead him to worship those gods. King Isaiah forced his way into the Holy of Holies to offer incense, which was forbidden to anyone but the high priest to do. So God had to strike him with leprosy and he spent the rest of his life in quarantine. King Manasseh even sacrificed his own son to a pagan idol. See, God wasn't working with storybook figures here. He was working in the nitty, gritty, falling, fallen, ugly, sometimes faithful lives of people who are just like you and me, redeemable but full of flaws. In fact, the one common characteristic among everyone in the lineage of Jesus was their incredible propensity to be downright human and downright sinful. Frankly, this is a dysfunctional family tree. In fact, some of you may be thinking, and I thought my family was bad. Dallas Willard says, uh, one of the amazing things about the human being is that it is capable of restoration, and indeed of a restoration that makes it somehow more magnificent because it has been ruined. Now, if I showed you a picture of our staff team before Clark Collins came on board, Clark, Clark is back there, and then asked you one question from that picture, which one doesn't fit? You would have no trouble picking me. I mean, Matt's the oldest on our team besides me, and he's 42 or 3? 42, 42, compared to my 49. Uh, See, that's what Matthew does here. Into this crowd of names, he puts four names that just don't belong. Remember the song from Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the others, one of these things just doesn't belong? Uh, These four names are part of the family tree, but they shouldn't be there. 
because, well, you know, they're, they're women. Um, if you look through the Bible or Jewish literature, you discover that women are not included in genealogies. The family bloodline was passed from father to son. And, and I let, in today, light of today's society, that doesn't sit real well, but we can't make the mistake of judging history in light of today. They just shouldn't have been there. So he names four women whose primary common link is their Gentile ancestry. So you've got Tamar of Canaan, who for a variety of reasons tricked the father-in-law of her dead husband into sleeping with her. Then you've got Rahab of Jericho, who befriended the Israelite spies when they came to Jericho, but she was a prostitute. Then you have Ruth, a Moabite, whose life is the basis of the Old Testament book that bears her name, the book of Ruth. And then you have the wife of Uriah the Hittite, whom we call Bathsheba, who succumbed to David's seduction to adultery. So you got four individuals here who were, first of all, Gentiles, then women, and then, of the four, only one was reputable. And yet, Tamar was later referred to as righteous. Rahab was later welcomed into the community, and she's actually commended for her faith in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Ruth, even though Moabites were forbidden by the law of Moses to, to enter into the house of the Lord until the 10th generation, so you had to wait a long time, became the great-grandmother of King David. And Bathsheba was chosen by God to be the mother of Solomon from that, from that adulterous relationship being the link between David and Solomon. Now, why are these ladies even mentioned? They didn't have to be to continue the genealogy. For example, verse 5 says, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth and Obed. See, they don't need to be in there. They don't add anything to the line. So by doing that, Matthew is calling attention to them for some reason. As Gentiles, as women, and in the case of three of them, questionable character. Most commentators believe it was because God's grace was exhibited to them in an unusual way in their lives. And while his grace is undoubtedly shown in the lives of all of the guys in the list as well, we would have missed the picture of God's grace in this genealogy because it, wouldn't been, it would have been hidden in the same looking crowd, all Jews, all men, they all look the same. So God has Matthew put something in here that just jumps out at you. Why, why are they there? William Barclay says, here at the very beginning of the gospel, we are given a hint of the all-embracing width of the love of God. God can find his servants amongst those, who from the, who, those from whom the respectable orthodox would shudder away in horror. See, the God who is faithful, the God who is sovereign, is also sovereignly and faithfully gracious. And I think some of us here this morning need to hear that. God is bigger than our failures. He never celebrates our sin. He had to die for those. But neither is he surprised by them. He's not sitting there wringing his hands when we act like dysfunctional kids. 
He's able to work with and in and through all of our spiritual dysfunction to use us somehow for his glory. That never gives us an excuse to just stay there because he, he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to grow. But neither does it disqualified from being accepted and used by him. He's very used to working that way. He's had only one perfect son to work through. In every other case, he has had to work with dysfunctional children. Matt said last week that we are always tempted to take our sin, and I think the words you used were to, to raise it above the cross and its power to cleanse. And the picture I got from that is that, so the blood is flowing from the cross down as we kneel before the cross to cleanse us. But if we can take our sins and put them up above the cross, that blood can't touch it because, because it's up here. We tend to think it's, it's just too ugly, it's, it, it's too way out there, it's, it's too much worse than anyone else's. Um, in fact, it's really, the, it's really the exception to the rule of God's grace. So then we feel like we somehow, somehow we have to pay for it, to, to, to earn our way somehow to forgiveness. This genealogy, among a host of other scriptures, says that we're wrong when we do that. And when we insist that we're right, we sort of chip away at and we degrade the, the worth and the power of, of the cross and the one who hung on that cross. Now, there's no doubt that, that Jesus' gene genealogy is a genealogy of death, and so is yours. All 46 people named before Jesus are dead, and so are most of your and my ancestors. They were like us. They had joys, they had sorrows, they had cares, troubles, fears, schemes, plans. But they've all died. The odds are 100 to zero. And we're not going to beat them. And unless Jesus returns, we will all just be a memory on this planet. That's what it means to be a fallen human. We're born, we live, we sin. We die. Here's the good news. The one who can give us life is found at the end of this family tree. Jesus, who is called Christ. From this genealogy of, and that's the genealogy written out, if you can't see it, in the form of a Christmas tree, because that's what, not, not what Christmas is all about, a tree. It's about what's written on that tree. From this genealogy of idolaters and adulterers and murderers and prostitutes and liars and child sacrificers, God brought one who would be none of that. And he would actually re reach back through his generations and reach ahead through every gen genealogy of mankind, including yours and mine, to offer life in place of death. And that is what Christmas is all about. It's not about a tree. It's not about everything we else do at Christmas. It's all about a savior. John 1 says this, in him was life and the life was the light of men. He came to his own 
and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And a totally new genealogy is begun. It's a genealogy of life. And that's because and only because that the baby born in that manger had the name Jesus, which means Savior. We're going to hear about that from Mike and Matt and Steve over the next three weeks as we follow the divine choreography of Christmas in the fullness of time with God's choice of first Joseph, then Mary, and then the first responders to the gospel. But, but this new genealogy of life is the only genealogy that begins with a death. Mark 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what he meant when as a baby grown into a man, he cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it's why he cried out, it is finished, the ransom is paid. And at that moment, at that moment, a totally new genealogy began for us. But on that Friday afternoon, that genealogy began and ended with death. But three days later, life erupted from the grave. And never again would that genealogy include death. Never. For as in Adam, 1 Corinthians, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Jesus said to Martha at the death of her brother Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And I ask you this morning, do you believe this? If you do, you are part of two genealogies. Your family genealogy, which just, they all end in death. And your spiritual genealogy of life. If that's true of you, then this table is for you. If you don't believe this, you then belong only to your family genealogy of death. But the good news is, you can do something about that right now, this morning. If you sense God saying to you, this is true. Only death is in your future, both physical and spiritual death. But you can, you can change that by trusting in the baby of Bethlehem as your only path to life. That's why I sent him for you. And if, as we pray in a moment, you respond to God and believe in his son as your only way to eternal life with God, rather than to eternal death separated from God, then this table will be for you also. I beg of you this morning, don't put it off. 
This is the season of new life that we are celebrating. That's why Jesus came. To give you a whole new spiritual genealogy that your physical genealogy cannot do for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your faithfulness. What a picture this genealogy is of that and what a picture our lives are of that. I also thank you, Lord, for your sovereignty, which which enables you to do anything you need to do to be faithful. And this genealogy in our lives show that so clearly in living human color. And thank you, too, that your grace permeates your faithfulness and your sovereignty so unmistakably, not only in this genealogy, but also in our lives. We rejoice in your faithfulness. This morning, we bow before your sovereignty. And frankly, we're speechless before your grace. All we can say is, thank you, Father. Thank you. And Father, during Advent, we remember and celebrate the first coming of your Son. And at this table this morning, we remember with deep gratitude the reason for that coming. But we also, with great expectation, are keeping one eye on the horizon for his second coming. And thank you that when he comes, all doubt of your faithfulness and sovereignty and grace will once and for all eternity be put to rest. Everything will be proved. So with the Apostle John, this morning we pray, come, come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, and we all say together, amen. Come to the table.